All right, everybody, go ahead and turn over to Second Corinthians chapter three. You can see how Webster's dictionary defines graduation. The successful completion of a program of study. Yeah, we celebrated a lot of successful completions of programs of study. I think we set a new record in the church having uh, 20 different graduations. I, I know uh, Chaz and Olivia um, are fully, uh, you know, graduation certified. I said, Chaz, you got to find some friends somewhere that are graduating from a UC school so you can go to another graduation later this month. But, you know, graduation is a special time. It honors the effort and work, the labor of years for the student, of the parents, of the teachers, the tutors, the encouragers, the coaches, to get across the finish line. But you know, sometimes we can look at life as a series of graduations, which I think is not really an accurate representation of life. You see, we can look at everything as individual achievements, and and we stop looking at life as one kind of ebb and flow of continuation. And so you make it through one achievement, and you think, okay, now that phase is done. But I actually think life doesn't really work that way, even though I think it's really appropriate to honor those hallmark times. You know, I'm excited because Cheryl and I and Michael and Lindsay were driving up to Santa Barbara this afternoon because Caitlin Tang, Chris and Rebecca's oldest daughter, is getting baptized at the beach after their worship service. But, you know, it would be wrong for Caitlin to think that once she you know, goes down in the water and comes up, That that's it. She's achieved it. You're done. No more part of the spiritual life. It's just, yep, you're out of the waters of baptism, and so you're done. Now, it's great to celebrate baptism, but baptism is kind of like the graduation. You're completing one phase of the project, but you still have this whole life journey that you're on. And so today I don't want to talk so much about graduation, but I want to talk about what the Bible says about transformation. See, transformation looks at life as this continual flow of change. And Webster's calls it a metamorphosis during the cycle of an animal. And you think about that, and I thought what Tim shared today was powerful. You see, if you only looked at the snapshot of Tim's high school life, you could wrongly characterize his entire life as going, wow, you, you were just a mess up. You're a loser. By the way, uh, some of us remember the banquet video. We've seen some nice uh, flowing hair photos of Tim in high school. Just want to remind you of that. That was great. But transformation is that growing process so that even you can have a real rough patch in high school and turn it around and do something great with your life. 
You know, Satan would love for you to compartmentalize your life into achievements that you either view as a success or a failure. So, you know, the thing about failure is we're all wired to remember our failures. You remember what word you missed in the spelling bee? You know, you don't remember the ones you spelled right. But it can be 40 years. And you go, I remember what word I missed. Ask somebody their top five greatest failures. They will list them off in less than 30 seconds. What's your five greatest strengths? They draw a blank. You know, I think that's the work of Satan because he wants to tear us down. He wants to convince you that you're not the man or woman that God designed you to be. You see, God views each one of our lives as this epic work in progress. And he's doing great things in your life. But if Satan can get you just for the moment to go, oh, I'm a failure. You can stop the process that God is trying to accomplish in your life. And transformation really is so much more an accurate view of life. You know, when, when you are young, you just can't wait to become old. When you're early in school, you just can't wait to get to high school because you just feel like, you know, then I'll be an upperclassman. And then you get to high school and you just can't wait to go to college. And then you can't wait to get a job because it's fu- so fun to work every day. And then you think all answers are found in a relationship. And then you end up in a relationship and you go, no, they're not. Okay, I need to throw in kids because they're such great investments financially. But the good news is my youngest told me when he was seven, Dad, don't worry. I'm going to pay you back for everything. I said, sweet. I better start keeping track. But... You know, it's pretty cool as your kids grow up. You know, now um, my Amazon Prime account is my son Michael's account, and he pays, and I'm the free family member for Amazon Prime. Not only that, Netflix. He pays the big bill, and I use it for free. So, you know, you, you raise them, and then, you know, there is a little bit of a return on an investment. Uh, but you think the parents, you know, they're, it's this emotional time and you're like, yes, I got them through high school and they go up to college. That's a whole nother phase of life. By the way, don't watch Toy Story 3 anytime soon. If you're sending a kid to college, just wait, just wait. I'm warning you. Um, but so, you know, there's all these phases of life. And while maybe you do really well at one, then the next one, there's no guarantee that because you're really good at this one, that the next one is that you're going to be all that. And every phase of life reveals things about who you are on the inside that you didn't know about yourself. But God does, and he's trying to transform you into the man or woman that he created you for. We're going to spend our entire sermon in one verse. 
Second Corinthians chapter three, verse 18. It says, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. We're going to walk through that verse together and see what God's word teaches about being transformed. You know, the first thing he says there, and we all. It's something that you do together. Spiritual transformation is not done isolated. You're not going to do it on your own. It's a team effort. It's a family effort. And we all. We've got to be connected to one another. You know, I loved it um, being at Brooks' graduation along with, I think there were six or seven West Ranch graduates and, uh, you know, at the graduations, there's just a great crop of family, and the campus was there, and the teens were there, and parents and family, anybody who was connected was there. And, you know, our students are walking out, and, you know, we're just like standing and cheering, and there is just a noticeable roar from the audience. And I was so proud of Brooke and all of our students and and then it hit me, not everyone had a we all. Because see, some people walked out and you didn't even hear a clap. Maybe wonder if their parents were even there. You're like, well, you'd expect at least here a few claps. And I remember talking to one of our uh, single guys, uh, Fernie, and he was in the midst of the fray. And he said, people next to him was like, hey, um, can you tell your group to cheer for my kid? But you know what they were saying? Hey, we want to have an all too. Because we want to celebrate together. But you don't just celebrate together when you haven't been together. I said, Fernie, I got an idea. We can be like a missions fundraiser next year. We can have a sign-up table where they turn in their tickets, and it can be put the name of your child on here. And then, you know, you can pay us, you know, like 30 bucks for Russian missions, and then our group will cheer loudly for your child. I said, I think that'd be a really good fundraiser. So we'll see if it sticks next year, but I like the idea. But the first place that each one of us needs to start is to answer the question, who's our all? You see, Paul's saying our our all are the people in this room. But do you have an all? I'm not asking, do you know people? Do you say hi to people? Because you can have friends but be disconnected. Do you have an all? Do you spend time with your all? Does your weekly schedule prove that you have an all? It's a busy, busy life. 
But when you want to have an all, you make time for your all. You think about things that we make time for. You know, I always tell people when they go, I'm too busy, I don't have time. I go, look at screen time on your phone. See how many hours a day you average. Then add in Netflix, especially, you know, the free Netflix from your kid. Uh, but, and add that all together and see if you can find a few free hours every week for your all. And I think what you're going to find is, oh, you have time. The question is whether it's a priority for you. Relational connectedness is never convenient. You have to make time for it in your schedule. Oh, Marty Fuquay, one of my favorite preachers, he has a saying, he goes, it takes 10 years to build a 10-year-old friendship. You got it? Okay. Because sometimes we want 10 or 20-year depth of friendship, but we want it to come in a week. We don't want to build the depth and the consistency over the decades together. It was fun watching Brooke's slideshow at her party and just seeing the decades of relationships and when we were all younger. But true relational connectedness is an investment of time, energy, of money, of resources, not for one time, but for a lifetime. And so who's your all? It was so awesome to be at uh, Jeannie Zuluaga's uh, baptism last Sunday. So encouraging. And, but hearing the sharing uh, from the ladies in particular was incredible. And I was so fired up to find out that it all began with a friendship with Susie Nicholas more than 10 years ago. And so they've had a friendship for more than a decade. That kind of started the process. You see, and then the women shared and and the friendships that that have been built to the time and all that. You go, I I got to hear who Jeannie's we all is. Because they all shared about her life. So the question for each one of us is, have we prioritized our all? Are we doing the hard work to be connected with people? Are we making time in our schedule? Hoping we connect with we all is not the same thing as making time in your schedule. Saying no to other things, whether it's early in the morning or late at night, to be relationally connected. Let's move on. He says, who with unveiled faces. You know, there's no mask. There's no wall, there's no distortion, there's no muting of who you are. You know, when Moses came off the mountain, his face was so glorious, he'd wear a veil to not shock the Israelites. You know, we live in a world that wears a lot of masks, a lot of veils. We smile and say everything's okay. When we're crying ourselves to sleep, At night, we smile and say we're happy 
when internally we're full of despair and hopelessness. You say marriage is good when it's bad. We all with unveiled faces. Now remember, we're talking about being transformed spiritually. So we've got to be connected to one another. What? With unveiled faces. Two groups. One of them, God. The other, the people around you. You say, well, God knows everything. Yes, He does. You ever known something about a person who's lying to your face? The fact that you know they're lying doesn't go, well, I feel connected because even though you're lying, I know that you're not being honest with me right now, so I still feel really close to you. The Bible says the lying tongue hates those it hurts. Lack of honesty is a reflection of where the relationship's at. Just because God knows everything, every thought, every feeling, every attitude of the heart, He knows our best and He knows our worst. Just because God knows doesn't mean that you are connected to Him with an unveiled face. Say, does your prayer life reflect an unveiled face? Do you pray what you really feel on the inside? Or do you pray the words that you think God wants you to to say? When you're mad, do you tell Him you're mad? When you're sad, do you tell Him you're sad? When you're hurting in a relationship, do you tell Him? You see, that's praying with an unveiled face. It's being honest. See, the lie of Satan is that somehow it's unspiritual to be honest with God. Like, he's going to be mad at you. No, when you're honest with God, then you have a connection with him. Otherwise, you're just saying words that are heartless. The act of praying in and of itself is not going to connect you with God. You've got to pray with an unveiled face. You say, well, I don't like to pray. Well, maybe because it's, you don't like to be honest before God. You don't like being vulnerable before God. Or feeling exposed. You see, our prayer life gives the answer to if we're standing before God with an unveiled face. Now, how about unveiled with others? Are you honest? How many people truly know what is really going on in your life? And I'm not talking about where 10 people know 10% of the picture. And so you put it all together and you go, yes, I'm completely transparent. No, you're not. Because people don't really know who you are. You say, we all with unveiled faces. It's being authentic. The problem is we're so worried about how people are going to view us that we give a false impression of who we are because we're worried that they might not love us if we're honest, but we actually wreck the relationship by being fake. Because the person that they love doesn't really exist. 
and you know it. So it doesn't bring a security in the relationship because you know that person only likes the fake you. You know what brings security? Is when you go, here's who I am. And then the person goes, you're awesome. Yeah, that's kind of ugly, but you're awesome. Love you. Can we hang out? You go, wow, they know like the worst of who I am and they still want to be my friend. Well, that's a true friend. You see, when we're inauthentic in relationships, we, we block God's ability to use people to help us transform into the image of God. Say, we need to be men and women that don't wear veils with God and with one another. We need to have the courage to be honest. When you get input from somebody, do you get input from the person who's most likely to agree with how you think? Or do you get input from the person who actually has the most to offer with their perspective? You see, when you're authentic, you actually want the best answer. I mean, because otherwise, like, why are you going through the motions to get advice in the first place? I've got a really bad idea, but I want to actually give the impression that I consulted wise counsel. So I found the person, uh, you know, out of a thousand, most likely to agree with me so that it can somehow feel like, see, I even was open to somebody else's perspective. But I picked the one that I know thinks the way I do. Like, why even go through all that? That's a lot of work. Just do what you want. How transparent are we? You know, Satan works hard in the transparency department because he knows that the power of God to transform is when we connect with unveiled faces. So if Satan can convince us, just tell part of the story. Just give, make yourself look maybe a little bad, but not terribly bad. Then the transformation can be blocked. It says, Who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory. Yeah, this is a great picture right here. Okay, so the whole point of this, the, the Greek words is contemplate the Lord's glory. What it cares with is this image of seeing God, not directly, not face to face, but through the reflection of a mirror. So it's, it's a bit like looking at the moon. We say, oh, the moon is shining brightly tonight. Actually, no, it's not. The moon doesn't have any light of its own. The sun's light reflects off the moon, and then we see it. So when we look at the moon, we're just kind of getting sunlight reflecting off the moon. Okay, you with me on the reflection thing? Okay. So you're not looking directly at the sun, but by looking at the moon, you're getting a little bit of a glimpse of sunlight. So Paul's saying 
that we sit and we contemplate the Lord's glory. And the words here is to sit in the presence of the face of God. You know, sometimes as a ministry, you have people ask you, you know, hypothetical questions like, okay, so do you have to pray every day to be a Christian? Do you have to read your Bible every day to be a Christian? And then you're a little, how long do you have to pray to be a Christian? How long do I have to read my Bible to be a Christian? And the fact is, those questions reveal a problem on the inside. Okay, the answer. Do you have to pray every day to be a Christian? No, but a good Christian will pray every day. Okay? You know, God's not going to kick you out of salvation if you don't pray one day. But if you're asking the question, do I have to, it reveals a problem in your relationship with God. Because, see, Paul says spiritual transformation occurs when we sit and contemplate in that mirror the presence of the face of God. You see, why do you pray? Why do you read your Bible? To be sitting in the presence of God. If it's a checklist of how many words do I got to get through? Okay, I read three chapters. I'm done. Okay, you can read three chapters of the Bible and get nothing out of it. You didn't contemplate any presence of God. You weren't staring in any mirror. You just looked at the words on the page. Just how I felt when I had to read Shakespeare in high school. I was in science. I didn't didn't understand Shakespeare. I was like, sounds cool, but I have no idea what they're talking about in Romeo and Juliet. Sometimes that's how we view the Bible. We're in a race to get done. I read the words. Listen, the, the point is not, okay, I said my prayer. Okay, I read the words. No, it's, are you in the presence of God? What is going on in your heart and your mind during that time? You see, the Word of God, the Bible, that's where God is communicating to you. The Word is living and active. It's powerful. If it's just words on a page, you're not in the presence of God when you're reading it. It's just A book. What's prayer? Remember, unveiled prayer. It's authentic, meaningful conversation with God. Say, what should go on in that? A lot of contemplation. A lot of beholding the face of God. A lot of, wow. That's what should go on. It's it's an amazing connection time between you and God. That's your manna for the morning. That's your daily time with God. That's what's supposed to go on. Now, I love this picture right here. And I think you can look at it in two ways that are both fitting with this verse. You see, when you look in the mirror and you're seeing the lion of the tribe of Judah, you see something very different than your face. You see, when you sit in the presence of God and you're contemplating His glory, it radically transforms your self-esteem. Because what you're looking at in the mirror is not yourself. It's actually the face of God 
The Bible says we're made in his image. So what do you see when you look in the mirror? Is it failure? Is it weakness? Is it flaws? Or do you see the lion of the tribe of Judah? You know, the fact is we can connect with this picture when life is good, right? It's not hard to be a Christian when life is good. What about when you're going through something tough? What do you see in the mirror then? Sickness, financial hardship, failed relationship, fired from a job. What do you see in the mirror then? See, Paul says, listen, when you spend time contemplating the Lord's glory, when you spend time in his presence, beholding the face of God, that changes who you are. It changes the perspective of who you are, of whose image you were made in. That's what we do when we contemplate the Lord's glory. Scripture continues. It says, Our being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory. I just love that. And this is a great picture. What a radical transformation. You know what? The work that's going on in your life, the monarch butterfly and their church service, they see images of your life and they're like, wow, that's even more amazing than what we do. God is molding you into his image with ever increasing glory. But see, I love this part of the passage because it's being transformed. We so much look life as an event. Well, what event? Whatever the event is right now. Was it a good day? Was it a bad day? How did I do on the test? Did I do a good job? Did I do a bad job? What about the project? What about this? What about that? And everything, it's like, oh, it was all good. Oh, it was all bad. Why? Because we constantly are reducing life to an event. Paul says, no, that's, that's the wrong way to look at life. Tim shared about it. The Bible is chocked full of people that if, if life was about one single event, were massive failures. Think about Peter. If the whole event of his life was are you going to stand up to a servant girl when your Lord is arrested, he failed. He denied the Lord. But see, life's not an event. It's a transformation. And he became the rock that Jesus talked about and went on to be one of the pillars of the church. If Paul's event was persecuting Christians, he was a failure. And he stood opposed to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, arrested and imprisoned his people. If life was an event, Paul was a massive failure. But there was... A whole nother rest of Paul's life. Why? Because just like your life, life is a transformation. And it says we are being transformed. It is an ongoing process. It is not 
something that happened yesterday, and maybe one day it will happen again. You cannot escape the transformation process. You know, that should be good news. Because it means that whatever you might identify as a weakness or a failure, that's just a speed bump on the highway to ever-increasing glory. That's not a big obstacle. God looks at whatever it is that we think is a big deal, and He's like, yeah, so I got this. You know, my my father-in-law was superintendent of Department of Highways in Canada for over three decades. He builds roads. He He runs all the heavy machinery. He hates speed bumps. Every time he comes to town, he's like, what in the world are these things? If I had my road grader, I'd like to just shear these things off so you can just drive normal on the road. You know what? That's how God feels about the obstacles in your life. They're just like little minor annoyances. God's like, yeah, I'm just going to shear those off with my heavenly road grader, and you're going to continue on because ever-increasing glory. It's a process. We close out. It says, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So where do you think the source of your transformation is? How about hard work? How about ingenuity? Knowledge, intellect, influence, success, having the most followers, experience, freedom, discipline. You know, the fact is, all those things are good. Well, I don't know about having the most followers. I threw that in for social media. I think it's good. But any of those things... You can put on the shelf of idolatry and say, that's how I'm going to change who I am as a man or a woman. And Paul says, no, it comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So you've got to spend enough time in the presence of the Lord for Him to do His work in your life. If you're too busy to hang out with God... He's not getting enough time to do his work. Now, God loves us, so he's going to work on us anyway. But it comes from the Lord. We've got to connect with others. We've got to be authentic. We've got to spend time contemplating the face of the Lord. Understand that it is a lifelong process. And understand that God continues to do his work in you. The Bible says that he works for you to will and to act according to his good purpose. That means not only do you do the right things, it's you want to do the right things. It says he works on both sides of who we are. Graduation is great to celebrate, but life is not a series of little snapshot events. It's one magnificent journey lived out of transformation. Let's find our source and strength. Let's connect with others. Listen, any obstacles we face, those are just minor issues. God is doing his work in you. 
Let's be transformed into his image. Let's stand as we close in a final song.